Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. If you have joined us here this morning for the first time or are visiting with us, we've been in a series called Growing Deeper in the Christ-Centered Life. And uh, two weeks ago, Bill Parkinson entered us into a discussion of being introduced uh, to the person of the Holy Spirit. It was only an introduction. And uh, what I'm going to be doing this morning is taking us just a little bit further in that relationship, and we'll continue on. But I'm going to be talking about those preparations that we make, not just to meet the Holy Spirit or to be introduced to the Holy Spirit, but actually to dance with Him, to have a relationship with Him. And that's why on your outlines I call it uh, pre-spiritual life counseling. It's much like that goes on when a couple comes to into my office and they're wanting to uh, have a lifetime together and they're wanting to know, they've, they've met each other, but they're wanting to know what are those essential elements that they need to work through in order to have a successful life of partnership together. And that's really what we're talking about here, partnering with the living God and what is required in doing so. You know, when I have those premarital sessions, inevitably there are two subjects in particular that seem to inject attention into what otherwise was somewhat of a casual conversation. You mention either of these two subjects and you notice that your counselee's backs suddenly stiffen a bit, their legs cross, their face muscles tighten, their eyes begin to nervously dance back and forth, and everyone becomes kind of uncharacteristically still. The whole environment becomes a little bit uneasy and uncomfortable. And that's because these two subjects are more than a little personal. They're absolutely private. And you don't really talk about these two subjects to very many people. They deal with our most intimate behaviors. The first, of course, as you might guess, is talking about sexual intimacy. And you need to talk about those things in premarital counseling. And the other is talking about spiritual intimacy. When you ask that man or that woman, what really is going on with them in relationship to the living God? Now, they all want to talk about that they go to such and such church and, or they grew up in a Christian home, and you're going, no, I want to talk a little more deeply. I want to know what God is actually doing in your life. Now, you might imagine we all have an enormous interest in both of those areas. And in both of those areas, we don't want to talk to just anybody about those, but we really are intensely interested if we're normal in both of those areas. But those are areas you just don't talk to anyone about. And yet, they are intensely important to all of us. Maybe you saw this past week, the new issue of Time Magazine, I have it here, where it was reported that they had the first comprehensive sex survey in America since the Kinsey Report in the late 1940s that came out. And this was a survey of all Americans to find out the sexual interest and performance of Americans across our land. And it has some very interesting uh, statistics that are found within it. Of course, some of it is, is not surprising. For instance, it uh, revealed again that 54% uh, of the men say they think about sex every day sometimes more than that every day. On the other hand, it said 67% of the women think about sex only a few times a week or maybe a few times a month. 
Well, there you have it. <laughs> Pretty significant differences there. It confirmed a, a Red Book article I read several years before where it asked men what their number one recreational interest was, and they said sex. And they asked women the same thing, and they said reading. <laughs> reading. Sex was way down on the list, barely edging out sewing, guys. <laughs> so that's not so surprising. Now, there was some surprises, and some of it was very encouraging, by the way. For instance, uh, it was reported that across America, and this is unlike other things, but this is the facts. This isn't fantasy that we all get caught up in. These are the facts. 94% of married people said that they had been faithful to their partner in this last year. That's encouraging in it. It's good news. But most surprising at all had, of all in these statistics had to do with sexual satisfaction. Who do you suppose are the most sexually satisfied people in America? Who do you think they might be? That's right. Time Magazine, and I'm quoting, sexually speaking, the happiest people are monogamous couples. The survey clearly says that monogamy is the good life. In fact, there was a follow-up article in this uh, magazine by Garrison Keillor, not exactly a conservative, and uh, he wrote kind of summarizing all these statistics, and I, I thought it fascinating, the title of his article that followed this sex survey in Time. Here's what it was entitled. It's good old monogamy that's really sexy. Now, isn't that fascinating? Now, that's not all. There's some more exciting things here. Who do you suppose are the most sexually responsive women in America? Well, according to the report, the most responsive women in America are, can I have the envelope, please? <laughs> you ready? I'm quoting Time Magazine verbatim. I love this statement. Believe it or not, now this is time saying this, believe it or not, the most sexually responsive women in America are conservative Protestant women. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. I'd like to clap on that one a long time. Yeah. Now listen to this. Penthouse publisher Bob Guccione growled, positively, outrageously stupid and unbelievable. Trash novelist Jackie Collins responded in a similar fashion. She says, and I'm quoting, it doesn't ring true. Where are the deviants? Where are the sex maniacs I see on TV every day? Well, you're looking at them here in the audience. <laughs> yeah, there they are. They're all over this place. Well, it's time for a new bumper sticker here at Fellowship Bible Church. <laughs> And I've got one that I'm selling after the service. You can put it right over the Speak Up for Decency, one that you've got on your car. Here it is. You ready? Bible-believing fundamentalist females have more fun. <laughs> well, sexual performance is not the only intimacy that we're concerned about and whether we're normal there. Uh, it's not just what goes on behind closed doors. It's also... Intensely, we have an intense interest in what goes on in the intimacy within, in our hearts, in our souls, in our spirit. We want to ask the question to someone in a safe place, what does spiritual intimacy with God look like? What does it feel like? Am I normal here? Am I missing out? Am I overlooking something? Am I blocking God out in some way that maybe I'm not aware of? 
Could it be I am being left out of a spiritual intimacy with God that others are enjoying and I don't even know it? Have you ever thought about that? Where do you go to find that out? And who could you talk to safely about that? Now, those are great questions. And I wish I had a survey that could, you could kind of measure yourself by. But we do have the Bible. And in the weeks to come, as well as today, we're going to look at some of those things that tell us what the normal Christian life with God experientially looks like and feels like. Now, to start us off this morning, I want to look uh, at some of what I call the characters, characterizations of spiritual life that I've observed over the last 20 years as a Christian. Because see, what most of us do is just like we do on television about sex. We watch Oprah and people like that and we measure ourselves by those weird characters there. And we look around us and look at other people and we think we know what's going on and we measure ourselves by that externally. And sometimes we do the same thing with our Christian life. We look and we see these different people and we say, I want to be like that or I don't want to be like that. And I, I've just kind of put with using movie titles kind of groups of people together. For instance, there are those types of spiritual life that I would call ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. These are the people that the idea of having a personal relationship with God is unimaginable for all thoughts and purposes. Maybe they've grown up in a church where they've come to church and they've heard about God, but the idea of actually having a personal relationship with God, they've never even considered that. And when they hear other people talking that way, their first thought is to doubt what they're saying, that, that they're all fakes, and that those people are, they're kind of deluded in some fashion. So when they hear about spiritual life in a touchy-feely kind of way, they feel compelled to feel either sorry for those people, or they make fun of those people, or they slander those people who speak of God in a relationship that you can really relate to Him. Fallen evangelists and exposed spiritual frauds, those just become more evidence for them and more fodder for their anti-personal spiritual life uh, cannons to blow away. It's all a sham, they say, with their eyes kind of rolling in cynicism. And they live that way. They still go to church, but they think that way about those who you know, are more demonstrative about their faith. Now, now, they get nervous when they hear Billy Graham, somebody like that that they respect. Uh, talk about a personal relationship with God because he's, he's harder to explain away and he kind of leaves a, a little small pinhole in their dam. Ghostbusters are described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14 this way. Listen, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and they cannot understand them for they are spiritually appraised. That's what the Bible says about those who would just simply brush aside any concept because they haven't experienced it of a personal relationship with God through His Holy Spirit. Then there are those I would put under the title, Wait Until Dark. That's an old movie by Alfred Hitchcock. Do you remember that? that? That kind of frightening thriller using the imagination. These are the Christians who, whose spiritual life is basically confined to orthodoxy and duty and Bible study. On the other hand, subjective experiences or spiritual impressions, listen, to them, those things are too mysterious. They're too prone to error. They're too wild for them. They like things to be under control. And when somebody starts saying, well, God, God spoke through me, or, or, or like Cliff said today, God, I feel like God moving me to say this and to honor my wife here in the congregation, 
Man, that makes people like that who are waiting till dark nervous. And if they get into a, a service with a conglomerate of Christians and maybe there's singing going on and one of them wants to raise their hands to God, or maybe someone wants to vocalize or get demonstrative, they just freeze up. Maybe, maybe that's happened to you. If you've been next to somebody that wanted to raise their hand all of a sudden, you know, you, 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 and here's what you're thinking. My goodness, what do they do when, when they're not in public? What happens when it's dark? Scares the ever-loving daylights out of them. That's why I call them the wait until dark kind of Christians. J.I. Packer, and listen, I've been with J.I. Packer, the great theologian. This guy's as straight-laced as they come. And he wears shoes that look like 1940 wingtips and, you know, a suit that's been out of style for 20 years. But he's a wonderful theologian. And all of these wait until dark kind of Christians love him. But listen to what he says. When the experiential aspects of the Christian life come up, many evangelicals seem to be at a loss. Evangelical doctrine is so firmly oriented to relating to God through the text of Scripture that anything beyond that is at once suspect. Biblical Christians, wherever else they are strong, are weak on the inner life. And it shows. Then there are the quiz show types. Uh, these are the types who grew up in the church and they've been in the church all their life since they were young people. And that shows. Because since they were in the learning center or teenagers, here's what's happened. All their life, they have been fed the answers to questions that they haven't even been asked yet. They've been given that all the way up through their classes and their teenage retreats and so on and so forth. And if they're not careful, they've got a bag full of answers and no life. And anytime anybody gets close to them and begins to probe too intimately in whether there's any spiritual life in there, they can just start the regimen of the God talk, the God answers. But you know what? There's no God. That's the problem. It's empty there. There's no connection, no life-changing connection with the living God that has eluded them because they thought it was all found in answers. And yet, in reality, if they were found out, they would be found out as fakes, just like the quiz show. 2 Timothy 3.5 gives the following description of these type people. It says, they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Then there are those of us who are Forrest Gumps. <laughs> you know, in some ways, these people are like the disciples that Paul ran into in Ephesus in Acts 19. He was on his third missionary journey, and Paul found these people who, who had believed in Christ, they had trusted Christ, and then he spoke to them, and you can read it there in Acts 19, about the Holy Spirit. And here's what they said to him when he mentioned the Holy Spirit. He, they said, and I'm quoting, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, you may find that unique, but I don't. There are people who've grown up in denominational churches all across America who acknowledge Jesus Christ Sunday after Sunday in creeds and believe in hearing him talked about from the Scriptures and preach from the Gospels, but they've never heard a sermon on the Holy Spirit, much less that you can really relate to Christ through the Holy Spirit. They've never heard that. No, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. It would be the same thing in 20th century America. See, all of life, they don't have a clue, so all of life is lived kind of in a surface kind of way, and you believe in Christ, but then you just kind of go out and live your life as best you can, and, you know, it's just kind of stupid is as stupid does. 
accidents, one after another, but, but you just hope Christ is going to save you at the end. It's that old phrase that Gump uses, life is just a box of chocolates, you know. You just reach in and whatever you get, that's what you take. There's no, there's no sense at all that the living Christ is within and can lead and direct and move and forecast and touch in a way that it's not a series of just spontaneous accidents. It's a life being led by God. You know, one of the things that was so exciting about the 60s for me and for my wife, my wife in particular, because she had grown up in the church and I hadn't, is that in 1968, she heard about the Holy Spirit for the first time. And she'd been going to church since the day she was born. Bill Bright's message on the Holy Spirit transformed thousands, hundreds of thousands, and listen, of church-going Christians into having a real relationship with the living God. That's why I call them Forrest Gumps. Then there are those types who God is speaking to all the time. You've been around some who, you know, God told me this, God told me that. It's just a running, constant conversation. God impressed me here. You know, God led me to buy this new car even though I didn't have the money, but I'm just trusting in faith, brother. And then they follow up, God led me to you because I need some money and God directed me towards you, brother. You know? I remember a friend of mine who found Christ, and I mean, every, every voice in his head was God. And he went up to a young sorority girl he had never met and said, you know, I've been watching you. <laughs> and God has spoken to me. And you're going to be my wife. I mean, come on. I mean, it gets scary. Is there such a thing as that kind of running conversation? Well, maybe. But the movie title I give these kind of Christians... Gone with the wind. <laughs> Recently, I heard a story of a man who fits this category. He was always having these impressions and confounding his wife with God told me this and God told me that. And then they would get into a series of arguments about his particular revelations and whether they were real or not. And one day they were in a car and driving back to home and they got in this real big fight. And towards the end of the drive, he just simply said, you know, honey, God has told me that you're supposed to be under my authority. I'm in charge. He said, you know, I read not long ago in Ephesians 5, I'm supposed to be the head of the house. And that means because God told me I'm in charge and you are never, ever to argue with me. Do you hear that? Well, they argued all the way right back home. <laughs> and they got home and they went in the house. And of course, now he's really mad. He's got to really pull out some divine revelation. And so he slams the door and he says, how dare you defy God? Well, he didn't see his wife for the next two weeks. And then after two weeks, he could start to see her just a little bit out of one eye. <laughs> and then over time, his eyes were wide open about his revelations. Did you know that's how it is a lot of times for people who every voice that goes off in their head is God? And we react to that. Because we know some of that's not true. We watch the life and it just, be, it doesn't smack of authenticity. But you know, around all those different characterizations of sometimes spiritually stunted, sometimes spiritually exaggerated spiritual life, there are times, don't, in this truth, that we come across the real thing. We don't know how to bottle it. We don't know how to capture it. 
But sometimes we're around Christians and we know when they said, God spoke to me. And we have the context of their life and we see what they've been through. We don't have any doubt. There are some people who, who just because of their, their pursuit of God, those voices, they know how to clear all those voices out. They understand the gospels when Jesus spoke when he was on earth. There was all kinds of people speaking authoritatively. But, but do you remember what happened when he spoke? It said that people pulled back and they said, man, he speaks as one having authority and not as our scribes. You know, that's how he speaks to your heart too. You'll have all these different voices of conscience arguing with you. But when you come to know the living God, when he speaks, he doesn't speak like conscience. He didn't come in there and argue with you. He comes in and makes a declaration. And then you can either believe or disbelieve. A life that has been prepared in such a way as to recognize and respond to the gentle nudges of the Holy Spirit, what's that life like? What does it look like? Jesus said it exists. In John 10, he says, and listen to this, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They hear it. He didn't say they read it. They hear it. What's a life like that has proven so faithful that it can be entrusted not just with gentle nudges of the Holy Spirit, but powerful encounters of the holy kind? What's that life like? That's what we want to talk about here this morning. D.L. Moody was a businessman who gave up his career to go into preaching the gospel. You don't know much about D.L. Moody, but... If you were in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, you would know that he was the, one of the world's greatest evangelists on the par with Billy Graham. I want you to listen to what he once said. He said, and I'm quoting, I was asking all the time for God to fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I can seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Now, is this a man who's deluded? You know, we got people looking for UFOs all the time. But I want you to know, are there encounters of this kind? Have you ever had one? You know, over the course of my life, there have been two occasions where the Holy Spirit went past an impression or a nudge, there have been two occasions that I found myself on holy ground in life-changing moments. And the voice that occurred in those moments spoke with authority. Changed my whole life. How do you get to that kind of life? How do you, how do you know when you can recognize His voice from all those other voices in your head? What does it look like? How can you move past being introduced to the Holy Spirit to dancing with the Holy Spirit? Well, I want to offer you in our little pre-spiritual life counseling here this morning, four factors, four things that must be true of you if you're going to dance with the Spirit. Now, I say this because God doesn't dance with everyone. Do you hear me? There are a lot of people who are in Christ, who know Christ, who go their whole life without one experience with God. It's all external. It's all duty. And, they, and they're very dutiful and obligated and faithful. But I'm talking about something that the New Testament shouts at us that 
Knowing about God is only a small portion of the Christian life. The glory of it is Christ in you, Paul says in Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what's so important. Now, these are very simple, but this is how you engage this partner for life. You've got to do something for him. He's done something for you. The first would be this, the belief factor. Now, that's very simple. But there are Christians all over the world here this morning, right now, who right at this moment are reciting the Apostles' Creed. And there's one line in the Apostles' Creed as they recite it where they'll say in unison, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Right? Well, we believe in the Holy Spirit. But you know what the real question is at that moment? You almost like to say, time out, let's stop right there. What do you believe about the Holy Spirit that you believe in? See, that's what I would ask you. What do you believe about the Holy Spirit? Do you believe He lives in you? John 14, 17 says He does. Do you believe He will never leave you? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says He won't. Do you believe He can lead you? Romans 8, 14 says He wants to lead you. Do you believe He can teach you? John 14, 26 says he will teach you. In fact, he wants to teach you a lot of things according to John 14, 26. Charles Stanley writes, in our pursuit of the spirit-filled life, we begin it by accepting that there is such a life. That was what was so revelatory to all those Christians back in the 60s when Bill Bright and others stood up and said, the Holy Spirit's really alive. Why don't you trust him? And it was like, yeah, maybe we can. It was like a new idea. You begin by believing there is such a life. And then Stanley goes on to say, we begin by accepting what is true as true. And only then do we begin to act on it. We saw such a acting faith in that D.L. Moody quote I gave you a moment ago. Let me give you the first line again. He says, I was asking all the time for God to fill me with his spirit. Now, nobody was requiring that of him. He wasn't at church. It was just saying that in his life, because he really believed the Holy Spirit was there in him, wanting to teach him all things, he was asking all the time that he be under the Spirit's control. He was looking for manifestations. He was listening for the Spirit at critical moments in his life because he believed, he really believed he was there and God honored that belief. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. But then you have to ask yourself, is it a natural thing for me to do to get up in the morning and going about my routine because of my true belief, my true truth, that I say, Lord, take my will. Take my life. I want it to be yours today. I, I want to learn from you today. I want you to teach me about real life today. And, and maybe you will and maybe you won't this day. But I'm going to keep asking you to control me so I can experience the glory of the Christian life. Do you do that? Is that naturally part of your Christianity? If it's not, I can tell you why it's not. Because you don't believe. That's, all, that's the reason. Or what about in critical moments? You've, you're trying to deal with an elderly mom and dad or there's a crisis with your son's life or you're talking to a business associate that's going through a financial crisis and he's created this complex situation or a, you're in a complex situation. In those moments, is it part of your faith to silently, behind the scenes, even as you're looking at that person in the eye, say, oh God, Control me with your Holy Spirit. Give me wisdom here. Help me. Teach me what's going on. 
Or do you fall back in your fallback position of trying to figure it out on your own? Stupid is as stupid does. See? And in those moments of asking Him to meet with you, there will be times where there will be nudges and manifestations and places where you will experience God. And sometimes you'll hear a voice and you'll think that's Him and then you realize it's not. And there's other times you'll, He'll ask you to do something crazy, wild, unmanageable. And you like to be in control, but you'll trust Him for that. And then you'll see it succeed. And at every step of the way, you go from a crawler to a coffee table holder to one day you're walking with God. And you experience the glory of Christ in you. That's what we're talking about here. You might write down James 1, 6, and 7. You can look it up later, but here's what it says about this belief factor. Let him or her ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed in the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from God. Do you believe? If you do, it will show up in every part of your everyday life with the Holy Spirit. Then there's the pride factor. And the pride factor, as we all know, begins the moment we're born and it manifests itself the minute we can talk. When we say these incredible words, I can do it myself. Remember that? And then you grow on into the adult position, a much more sophisticated statement of that, but where you're going to do everything yourself, and the Bible calls that pride. I haven't heard a sermon in a long time on pride. I looked it up in my concordance. I started looking at it, and there was page after page after page of verses, hundreds of them on the issue of pride. Tells me something about me. For me to think I can do it myself. I don't need your arm. I don't want to dance your steps. Get away from me. I can do it myself. Psalm 101.5 says, No one who has a haughty look or an arrogant heart will the Lord endure. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Jeremiah 50.31 says, Behold, I am against you, O arrogant and prideful ones. You see, if we're ever going to walk with Christ, there's going to come a day where we have got to bring pride crashing down at the feet of 2 Corinthians 3. I want you to turn there. Because there are some of you who are young, you're in your teens or 20s, and you think you can do it yourself. And here's what I want you to tell you to do. Go out and try. Go on. Go on. Do it. Give you 5, 10, 15, maybe 20, 25 years at most. You know what you're going to find? You can't. And then when you do, you got another choice. Now that you found you can't, now you got a decision whether in the can't position, you're going to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just say, well, then I'm going to ring whatever left of life is for me. Go ahead and try that. Try it. And you'll end up at the same place at the end of your life, recognizing it didn't work. Somewhere, somehow, if you're going to walk the Christian life, the Spirit-filled life, you've got to come to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. It says, And such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Now listen to this. Not that we are adequate in ourselves. Oh, man, I hate that verse. How, you, you mean I'm not adequate? What, what about building my self-esteem? Not that you are adequate in yourselves to consider anything 
as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter. Well, what does he mean there? Not of the law. You, you can't just read it in the scriptures and say, okay, that's what it says. I'll go out and do it. Go out and try that. You'll fail. All of life will be missing the mark. All of life will be not being good enough. That's not the spirit-filled life. It's not the letter. It's of the spirit who says yes to you, who's trying to live through you, who's trying to make you adequate in your imperfections. And you know that already because pride has crashed down. And you're saying, God, help me. And he's helping you. And you're making progress. And what does that give you? Verse 6 says, life. Just life. You really begin to live. You think, God really does love me. He wants to walk with me. It's not a bunch of rules and failure. It's a bunch of just progress with him. Partnership. A love relationship. That's the new covenant. That's it. Let's forget about our failures. Let's walk with him. But you can't do it until pride finally says, I can't do it myself. Then there's the integrity factor. And you might write down the following statement. It's clean people that see God. It's clean people. Look at Matthew chapter 5, and you'll recognize that. Turn with me, everybody. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. You'll recognize this as being the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has just given some general principles of his kingdom. And he makes this very simple statement. All these are simple statements, but they are just packed full of life. And one of them, which I love so much, is Matthew 5, 8, which says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? Tell me, what is it? See. They're going to see God. Now, now, now you just got to stop there and go, is he kidding? I don't think anybody saw God. Well, God has a wonderful mixture of exposures. But all it's telling us, and you can't put it in a box, and I can't do it here today. It's just saying that if you prepare yourself to dance with the master of the universe, you need to be clean. And if you're clean, he's going to come pick you out of the crowd and say, want to dance? But if you're not clean, here's what it says in Psalm 101.7. He who practices deceit shall not dwell in my house. He'll never step on my dance floor. Whether he's a Christian or not, he's not going to dance with me in this experiential relationship that I would really like to give him. That's the integrity factor. Then finally, there's what I call the control factor. And since you're in Matthew, you might turn just a few pages forward to Matthew uh, chapter 13. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 3. Just turn backwards. Matthew 3. Now, I want you to know, because our congregation, and this is not totally true, but just generally through, true, is a very affluent congregation. And I want you to know something about us that I've observed. Our money, our ability to be flexible, our ability to make numerous choices with that money makes us extremely high-control people. We want to do it our way, on our time, with our manner, and we don't want anyone telling us what to do. We lead. Others follow us. And when you bring that into this house, this spiritual house, 
and talking about spiritual life, that becomes a tremendous obstacle to relating and dancing with Jesus Christ because he wants to be in control. And I want you to see that Jesus himself as a man had to learn this. As a young man, he grew up, he was faithful to God without sin for sure. But I don't think there was a place where he had reached where he had come to a place of giving up full control of his life. Now you may say that's odd, but I don't think it was. I think he did the right things before God and lived his life and made choices and did kind of what he wanted to until Matthew 3. He's 30 years old now. And in Matthew 3, we see this baptism. And I don't know if you've ever figured out what's really going on here, but let me read it to you and I'll make a couple explanations. It says, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John the Baptist tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? See, John's was for sinners. It was a baptism of repentance where people would come and baptize and confess their sins. And he saw Jesus, his Savior, and he said, what are you doing here? And Jesus said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John baptized him. Now what's going on here? Well, you'll have to read the whole context, but really it is Jesus Christ at 30 years of age coming to his father and giving up control. That's what he's doing. He's giving up control. He said, I know you have a plan for me. I know you have a calling on my life. I've sensed that and you've told me that. And now take my life. And in order to, to consecrate it, we're going to have a, a symbol, a baptism of consecration, of submission. John's baptism of Jesus wasn't of repentance. It was of submission. When Jesus went down the, the waters, if I, can, if I can paraphrase, it would be this. You know how we say in normal baptisms, we say buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Here's what I think Jesus' baptism was like. Losing control, giving up your control, raised to walk under control under the control of God. And God, his father, was so pleased at his willingness to give himself, to lose control, to dance with the spirit, that the spirit, and this is where the first time the spirit's mentioned in Matthew, comes out of heaven and his father says, man, I'm proud of you, son. And then look at chapter four, verse one, because from this time on, he's lost control. Because it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. And he would be led by the Spirit the whole rest of his life. And he would come to a place in a garden where he was so scared to dance with the Spirit. And yet even then, he worked it through and said, not my will, but thine be done. That's a man under control. Not overly controlling. And I want each of us to know that if we're going to dance with the Spirit of God... It doesn't matter if you're a president or king. You have got to come to a place where you're baptized with the baptism of submission. You give up. You let go. You lose control. My good friend John Fisher, who was a songwriter, wrote this a number of years ago to a Christian magazine. He said, The Spirit of God refuses to be choreographed. His dance is raw, new, jerky. Most people even... Those who pride themselves in their dance are afraid of this real dance. They're afraid of anything they can't control, and the real dance is unmanageable. Mostly, it's vulnerable, and that's the quality that they fear 
the most. You can never find the life I'm talking about until you prepare yourself with submission. So where are you here this morning as we have our little pre-spiritual life counseling session? I want you to look at the page there and you'll see those four factors, belief, pride, integrity, and control. And you say, where do I start? Well, here's where I want you to start. Let's start spiritually. Let's just take a moment here in a moment of silence and you, you ask the Spirit of God, which of those am I weakest in? Let's, let's begin by talking to Him. Which of those keep me from a living relationship with you? And if He leads you to one of those, that's the place to start. I want to conclude by quoting A.W. Tozer, who was one of the great theologians of a bygone day. He said this, and I love him for it because he was such a great theologian. He said, orthodoxy, which he gave his whole life to, orthodoxy is at best only a slender part of the Christian life. Hello. Did you hear that? Only a slender part. Well, what's the rest of it? The rest of it is what Paul said in Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not Christ in history, the hope of glory. Not Christ in the scriptures, the hope of glory. Not Christ in the liturgy or the sacraments, the hope of glory. Not the church in you, the hope of glory. Not your friends around you, your hope of glory. Christ, the ultimate intimacy, the ultimate oneness, the living God in you. That's where real Christianity is. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.